Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Patrick Page was dubbed by Playbill as the villain of Broadway, and starting tonight, he stars in the new HBO series, The Gilded Age. We spoke last year when he visited Shakespeare Theater in D.C. to perform his original one-man show, All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, Patrick. Thanks for having me. We all know Shakespeare's, you know, protagonists by heart, you know, Romeo and Hamlet. We can quote them by heart, but um, the villains are, are kind of underrated. So I'm glad you're shining a light. What made you what made you come up with with the idea in the first place? I mean, I'm sure you've been a Shakespeare nut forever, but what, what made you hone in on the villains? I think the, the first huge, well, huge, what a terrible word to use about it. Um, I think the first success I had as an actor, as a young actor, was playing Richard III, who is one of Shakespeare's great, great villains and one of his earliest villains. And um, there was something about that role and the connection that a villain has to the audience, because Shakespeare's taken this tradition from medieval morality plays, and it's a tradition called the vice character. And the vice was a kind of a... Um, a, a personified sin. He wasn't even really a human being. He was like greed or lust or envy. And uh, he got to speak directly to the audience. And he was that chaos character, you know, the Joker in Batman. And he spoke directly to the audience and it became an audience favorite. And then Shakespeare took that character and made it into a human being in his Henry VI plays and in Richard III. And so the character has this kind of conspiratorial relationship with the audience. And I played that character in a replica of the Globe Theater out in Cedar City, Utah, at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. So the audience was all around me and stacked up over me, you know, on three sides of me and and above my head as well. And so um, just that direct one-on-one contact with the audience was so thrilling. And then as I went on in my career, I happened to play a lot of other characters that were dark characters. For example, right now, um, well, except for the shutdown, I'm playing Hades in Hades Town on Broadway. And the character I play in Gilded Age on HBO also seems to be a bit of a darker character named Richard Clay. So it, it's just something that's kind of come my way. And I had the idea that maybe if you started at the beginning of Shakespeare's career and then traveled chronologically through the canon, which is a period of about 20 years that he had as a writer, you might find out how his thinking on the subject of human evil developed. And since it's one of the most important questions that we have as people, which is why do people do bad things to one another? um, We might come to some real discoveries. And that's what I did. And I sort of put the 
pieces in order from 1590 through to 1611 and found Shakespeare really struggling with this question of why do people do terrible things? Are we born that way? Can you tell evil people by looking at them? And particularly the question of revenge, that we have this instinct for revenge. And Shakespeare as a writer in 1590 was sort of handed this dramatic tradition of the revenge tragedy, which we still have today. Um, but it seemed to trouble him, the human instinct for revenge, and he wrestles with it his whole life and eventually really comes to write very thoroughly about it in, in, in Hamlet and then has some resolution about it in The Tempest. But as I say, we still have these uh, revenge tragedies today. If you watch Promising Young Woman right now, um, that is essentially a Jacobean revenge tragedy. So you say you sort of charted it um, chronologically. I love that you do that. Um, remind us some, some of the remind us some of the villains that that uh, that are some of the stopping points along the way. <laughs> well, I think we have some expected ones, and then as I dug in, I I found some unexpected ones that added some uh, welcome levity to the evening. You know. Um, so it starts really with the Henry VI plays in, in 1590 with the character who then becomes Richard III in the fourth part of that series. Um, so Richard III and then Shakespeare writing this revenge tragedy writes this character called Aaron in Titus Andronicus who's bad to the bone. Um, and then he goes through a period where he's writing the sonnets and he's falling in love with the dark lady of the sonnets which I explore a bit. And during that period, he doesn't write any new villains. He writes almost exclusively about love. And it's this unbelievable outpouring of love poetry like nothing else in history. Romeo, Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, Love's Labor's Lost, uh, the, the sonnets, all of that. Um, and then after that, he sort of emerges from this period of writing about love. And when he emerges from that, he seems to have changed and the villains begin to deepen and become more human and the next play he writes is also a romantic uh, comedy but it has in it the character of Shylock the moneylender of course mm -hmm. the merchant of Venice and it's it's with Shylock that he starts to really really put himself in the villain's shoes and we understand that if we were Shylock, if we had been treated the same way Shylock was treated, we might behave exactly the way Shylock behaves. So Shakespeare's really trying to dig under and look out through the villain's eyes. And then it's very interesting, in the same way that Shylock kind of runs away with the Merchant of Venice, and although he is clearly the villain of the play, becomes for most people the central focus of the play. In a similar way, Falstaff in the Henry IV plays is I think obviously written to be the antagonist of the play. He's called an old white bearded Satan. He is obviously the corrupter of Prince Hal. He is, uh, he's not just a vice, he's all the vices rolled into one. He's a glutton, a lecher, a liar, a thief, a womanizer. And, uh, and yet he, is this unbelievably witty, charming, eccentric, and unbelievably intelligent character who then sort of runs away with the play. So I explore Falstaff a bit, which leads me then into 
um, sort of the opposite of Falstaff. If Falstaff is kind of the the embodiment of a man who embraces everything about life, wine, women, song, food. Malvolio in Twelfth Night is the opposite of that, a man who loves no plays or music, a man who seldom smiles. Um, and so we spend some time with Malvolio. And then Shakespeare begins to go into the period of his great tragedies, the, the four great tragedies. And in Hamlet, he does this extraordinary thing, which is at the very moment that everyone actually knows for sure, Hamlet knows for sure, and the audience knows for sure, that Claudius is in fact the villain of the play. He is in fact the murderer, he is the usurper, he is, he is uh, and, um, the person that the audience wants to see Hamlet take his revenge on. At that moment, when we all think we're gonna get to go home, because we know who the villain is and Hamlet can carry out his mission. At that moment, he has Claudius go into the chapel and pray. And he creates in the character of Claudius, a fully three-dimensional human being with a conscience. He gives the villain a, a, a complete and total sense of conscience. And then after that, he, he moves onward to Othello where he asks the question, what it, is it possible that someone could have no conscience whatsoever? Which is of course what we find with the, what we call in our modern times, the psychopath who has no conscience and no empathy. And that's Iago of course in Othello. And from there, it's all kind of wrapped together in the character of Macbeth because Macbeth is not uh, a psychopath. He's the opposite of a psychopath. He has unbelievable conscience. He has tremendous empathy, and yet he chooses to do an unspeakably evil thing. And that choice then makes him go deeper and deeper and deeper toward that decision. Um, and then he Shakespeare continues to explore this in King Lear with Edmund and um, and then he goes into a period of um, of kind of the romances, which are sort of fairy tales. They begin in crisis, but then they end in reconciliation and harmony. And I don't think it's that Shakespeare necessarily changed his view of human beings. I, I honestly think he just really wasn't willing to put himself through it anymore. He wasn't willing to go there anymore as a writer because it's unbelievably costly emotionally and psychologically, even to act those roles, let alone to write them. But at the end of his career in his final play, The Tempest, he comes back to the question of revenge. And Prospero is a man bent on revenge who at the end of the play confronts his own thirst for revenge and eventually concludes with the help of his spirit, Ariel, that the, the greater virtue is in forgiveness is in, uh, and, and, and he forgives his enemies and he moves forward and he doesn't take the vengeance that the play seems to be aiming toward. So that's sort of the trajectory of, of the evening. Well, yeah, thank you for walking me through all that. Are you, so in terms of your actual performance, I know it's like a one man show, are you slipping in and out of each character delivering the lines like with a different voice or are you 
are there connecting tissue in between where you are just talking as Patrick Page or how, you know, how is the format? I'm a kind of a tour guide. I like to think of myself as like a docent and like, and like any good tour guide, I, I once hired a tour guide to take my parents and me through uh, the UK um, because they needed to be, my parents needed to be, um, they needed a, a van to take them around. They couldn't walk much. And so because of that, I hired this tour guide and it was wonderful. It was great in many ways because I learned many things that I wouldn't have learned otherwise, but it was frustrating in some ways because of course I couldn't go and see everything I wanted to see. And it's the same way with me being the tour guide in this show, which is, you know, I'm stopping here and there pointing things out, but of course I can't stop everywhere. The, the stops I make, I sort of just walk you through. Yes, I, I play the characters. I play each of the characters. I, I sometimes play characters in dialogue with each other. So in one scene, I'll be more than one person. And then in between the scenes that Shakespeare has written will be my observations and the connective tissue about how one play reflects on the next or leads to the next or um, looks back on the previous play. Um, those kinds of observations with, with the caveat that I'm, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a scholar, I'm not uh, a psychiatrist, although I'm making um, kind of maybe possibly scholastic observations or psychiatric observations that I, I, I'm not necessarily qualified to do that, that these are Patrick Page's uh, observations as an actor who's been working on this material for 40 years. Gotcha. So um, when and where exactly was it shot? I know we're all you know, most theaters are shut down right now. It was so wonderful. Um, Simon Godwin asked me if uh, I would uh, come into the Harmon, which is, I've done uh, a couple of plays in the Harmon. I, I, I did a couple in the, uh, what was then called the Landsberg Theater. I did Macbeth and Othello there. And then in the Harmon, I've done uh, Coriolanus and The Tempest. And it was back in the Harmon Theater it was wonderful to be in a theater, you know, having not stepped into the, a theater of any kind since last, you know, March 15th or whenever it was. It was amazing to come in in November of last year and step into this theater under full Screen Actors Guild protocols uh, for COVID safety. So I was tested um, here in New York twice before I came to Washington. I was then tested again uh, when I got to Washington and then had to isolate for 48 hours in Washington before coming to the theater and being tested again as I entered the theater. And then of course, we're masked at all times. We're always keeping at least six feet and, and frequently much, much more than six feet. And the crew is bare bones. It's one cameraman and then two stationary cameras. And I have to say, I, I, I must find out the cameraman's name because he is really my acting partner in this. Um, because we were doing it on, on uh, we were shooting for just a single day with no rehearsal. Um, what that meant is that he was essentially improvising with me. So he's improvising where he's moving. He's got on a steady cam and I'm sort of dancing with him and he's dancing with me. And so when you watch the film, I think you'll see this marvelously um, balletic almost kind of camera movement 
um, as he moves clear around me sometimes, sometimes shots of the empty theater, sometimes from the side, the back, the front, sometimes from beneath me, sometimes from above me. Um, and it, he, he just had this incredible instinct. And we essentially ran the show once in the morning with those, actually, I think four cameras. I believe there was also a stationary camera located in the balcony. And, um, and then uh, took a break for a half an hour and then came back and ran it again. Um, and from those two uh, run-throughs of the show, um, Alan Paul, our director and our editing team were able to create the film that is there. And, and it's and quite remarkable. I mean, it, it looks as if it could be shown tomorrow on PBS or from National Theatre Live. I mean, it, it, it's just a fully professional product, but done completely under COVID lockdown conditions. One of the things I loved so much about it is that um, when someone hears this and hears me talking about Shakespeare, obviously they hear the enthusiasm in my approach, but I really wanted this show to be um, if, if, if someone has seen the whole Shakespeare canon, if they've been to dozens of Shakespeare plays and if Shakespeare is their thing, that they would really love it because they'd get new insights and also they hopefully would appreciate the acting and the approach and, and me playing all the characters and all of that. Um, one actor playing all the characters, not necessarily me, but an actor playing many different parts. But that it would also be a, a show that if you were perhaps a bit put off by Shakespeare or didn't understand Shakespeare or didn't understand what the big deal was about Shakespeare, why people loved him so much, that this show might be um, an entry for you um, and because I do guide the audience through and because the villains themselves are so charismatic and so entertaining that if you knew nothing about Shakespeare, it would still be something that, that you would really have a great time at. Great. Um, and before we run, um, you've listed a bunch of the, you know, the Shakespeare villains that you're going to portray chronologically. Um, remind us some of the outside of Shakespeare villains you've played. I know, I mean, you mentioned Hadestown in, in, uh, at the beginning where you play Hades. Um, got a, a Tony nod a nomination for that as well. Um, yeah. But um, um, there's been a bunch of other ones. You were the Green Goblin in Spider-Man. Yes. You were the Grinch. Uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, like a, a St. Joan, a ton. Um, why is it you think Playbill nicknamed you the villain of Broadway? Is that a, is that a badge of honor you wear? <laughs> well, I love that. It's, it's great as an actor to have a wheelhouse, as long as you're not a prisoner in the wheelhouse, you know. Um, and so it's, it's quite wonderful when uh, uh, a bad guy comes up that people might think, oh, you know, what about Patrick? He'll, he'll, and I hope that the reason for that is that um, they know that I'm going to bring some dimension to a character that might otherwise lack dimension. Um, so for example, a character like, um, I played in uh, A Time to Kill on Broadway, I play Rufus Buckley Jr., directed by Ethan McSweeney, who does a lot of things in, in, Virginia and in Washington, and um, and I was I was grateful that that people noticed that I was that that I fleshed out the interior of that character so he wasn't just a bad guy. Similarly, with the Inquisitor in Saint Joan, or even with a character like the Grinch or Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, or 
uh, I had played the Comte de Guiche in Cyrano de Bergerac on Broadway, that I, what, I, what I hope I lend to it is I'm always digging to find out what's underneath these characters. Why do they do the things they do? So even as you're looking at them and thinking, my God, that man is doing terrible things, you understand why he's doing those terrible things. You have some feeling for, uh, for the human being that's there because it's really only broken people that try to hurt other people. And so it's finding that crack in the man. What, what is the brokenness? What's the void that he's trying to fill with his cruelty or with his ambition um, that, that I go for? Well, we're glad we're glad that you you do go for it because yeah, I mean, I think a really good villain is is needed to. I mean, it's got to be you got to have that counterbalance, and <laughs> in the best cases, their needs are in direct inverted opposite of of what the hero needs. So that exactly, I appreciate, I appreciate. I mean, if you if you look back at all the great flicks, I mean, even the ones with the best heroes, they really only work like you mentioned. You got to have the Joker to the back. I was I was noticing that you're you're you know you you're famous for knowing every Oscar pick and that you're quite a a, 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 fil, a film expert and I'm thinking about those film villains and you know I was just talking to someone last night about Hannibal Lecter and you know that that film would be nothing uh, I mean it, it, uh, Jodie Foster's performance is quite astonishing but but she has to go up against this titanic uh energy and whoever I mean, yeah, whoever it was thomas harris who thought of the idea of you know uh, a man-eating psychiatrist uh, you know a cannibalistic psychiatrist just a brilliant idea and then tony hopkins fleshed it out yeah i mean t most movies would uh would kill to have one good villain and that one had two i mean exactly exactly kill too i mean man i mean yeah you're right and then but i mean yeah it's a great point you make i mean god dude luke skywalker would be nothing without darth vader you know uh, yes and and from my money you know the, in in terms of john williams work the star wars theme it pales in comparison to the imperial march there's just something about that energy um when you hear that music and uh I'm actually watching right now, I'm watching The Mandalorian on TV, you know, and you, and you long for those really strong, intelligent, powerful villains. Oh yeah, absolutely. I guess we got one in, in Thanos. This is weird, but I'm mentioning superheroes and I'm not even a huge superhero guy. I'm not either, but it, I mean, it's, it's important when you have the, they're, they are, look, the reason we're drawn to villains, and this is one of the main reasons I put the play together, is that I have to find each of these people in myself and I have to make them real for myself. And that means I have to find in myself Shylock's thirst for revenge. I have to find Malvolio's grandiosity. I have to find um, uh, Claudius's moral equivocation, uh, moral weakness. I have to find... Uh, Macbeth's equivocation, all of those things. And I have them. And uh, I think Carl Jung was quite brilliant when he observed it's, it's, it's when we deny those things in ourselves that we get into trouble because we project them then on other people. And, and that's when we have xenophobia or, or anything else. We project all our ills outward onto other people. But when we can look in ourselves and say, you know what? I have that in me. You know, when I watched 
promising young woman the other night. I was so curious in my own response as I feel this need for revenge rising in me as I watch these guys apparently getting away with something, you know, going to their wedding after having essentially uh, cost a young woman her life. And, and, you know, nobody taught me that. Nobody taught me a thirst for revenge. It's a human instinct. And so I'm very interested in these dark impulses in myself. And it's a, it's a, um, it's a real joy and I think it's therapeutic to be able to act them out for people. Agree entirely. Well, as Al Pacino said, uh, say goodnight to the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> say goodnight to the bad guy. You'll never see a bad guy like this again, let me tell you. All right. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Patrick Page, uh, everybody, again, it's called All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain. So everybody, check it out. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.